my name's uh, James Mulligan. My connection with the festival is largely that I'm a fan. I came here when it was called Go North in 2014 when I was running the Cork Film Festival. We did a film festivals panel, and that's my background is uh, running film festivals and maybe helping filmmakers with a bit of marketing and distribution, and I just volunteered to come and host a couple of events, so uh, here I am. This is Arthur. I'll just quickly read out the, the potted bio of, of, of Arthur, and then you can make him welcome. He's an award-winning... Oh, what awards have you won, Arthur? Uh, Royal Television Society Award. Jolly good. Filmmaker with a reputation for making high-profile observational films on a wide range of complex and sensitive subjects involving complicated and often unprecedented access. A self-shooter, his films have a distinctive and intimate look. Recent credits include American Justice, which we're going to unpack uh, thoroughly today, and Louis Theroux, Seville, for the BBC. So please make Arthur welcome to Internet. Am I right in assuming that uh, very few people in the room have seen American Justice? Has, put your hand up if you have seen it. And all one, two, handful, of course you and you should have. Um, so two civilians, as it were, who have seen it. So what I thought we'd do is try to shape the event, which assumes no prior knowledge. Um, with that in mind, uh, Arthur, perhaps we should go straight into a clip. Sure. And then you could just tell people what they're about to see. Sure, yes. Yeah. So and as much detail as you like. Okay, well this... Um this first clip is from the first episode. It's a three-part series. And um, uh, this clip shows two brothers um, who are clearing up the trailer that belonged to their father who had been murdered a couple of weeks earlier. Um, it probably doesn't need much more explanation than that. Uh, we can talk about it afterwards. That's early on in the first of three um, episodes in the series. They're, they're an hour long each. And it's set in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. And it is everybody involved in the justice system. So it's the victim, it's the perpetrators, relatives of both um, detectives, forensic scientists, prosecutors, defence attorney, judges, all the way to the top of the tree. And what is astounding, and I'm going to start with a reasonably banal question, but one that is begged by that list of the cast there is, how on earth did you get such access and to everybody? Well, I think um, you wouldn't get that kind of access in, in the UK. Uh, one thing we were able to do was, was film in, in, um, in the courts. So we were able to, to follow uh, trials, um, uh, murder trials, and, and film every aspect of that trial. You can't do that in the UK, obviously. There was a series on Channel 4 that got around that problem recently um, called The Trial of Murder in the Family. They had to uh, essentially make up a case... Uh, they got a real jury in to um, to sort of, uh, and they got real barristers in. But uh, the case they were presiding over wasn't a real case, and that was a way of getting around not being able to film in courts in the UK. But in America, uh, the cameras are allowed into the courts, um, and uh, I think we felt that we had a good opportunity to uh, really to be able to take a 360 look at the justice system uh, in America in the way in which we couldn't in the UK. And our starting point was uh, getting access to the courts in Jacksonville. So we actually negotiated access to the courts in, in Jacksonville, northern Florida, uh, and Miami. And at, at one point, we were going to make the series in, in, in both cities. Um, and we made a decision late on that if we concentrated on just one place, it would give us uh, a real chance of going deep um, and uh, being able to follow uh, every aspect uh, as thoroughly as possible. Um, 
So once we got access to the courts, we uh, got in touch with the, the state attorney's office. That's the office that prosecutes every case in the city. And um, he, they were open to a conversation. I think the BBC name carries a lot of weight in America. Um, they, uh, they have a, a very um, entitled local press uh, who um, will turn up at every crime scene and they'll be outside uh, the courthouse for every trial and they turn over 24-7 rolling crime news. Um, and often they poke their noses in where they're not really wanted to and I think... Uh, uh, they appreciated our more um, long-form approach. Uh, they like to point to the fact that we have a sort of code of ethics, um, that they would have a chance to see the programmes before they, they went out on TV, that it would be quite collaborative, even though they didn't have any editorial control. Um, so, uh, yeah, we got access to the state attorney's office, we got access to the public defender's office, um, we got access to the, the sheriff's office, the police force out there, and to their homicide uh, team. Uh, to, to they have sort of five uh, detective units. Um, and because, you know, the state attorney's office and the sheriff's office work very closely, obviously prosecutors rely on, on the work of, of detectives' thorough work, and, and they work alongside them from the very start in America. A prosecutor will be on the crime scene from the beginning. Um, I think once we got access to one place, we were going to be granted access to the other. They all grew in confidence, and Jacksonville's not a huge place, maybe only a population of 800,000, and quite quickly um, we, we knew everyone. And, yeah. and we spent a lot of time there before we started filming. We, we went out there originally in late 2015 to shoot what's called a taster tape, um, to take back to the BBC and persuade them that it was worth us making a series, and then we spent maybe two months on the ground uh, without cameras shadowing teams and getting to know people and sort of building that trust so that um, this was actually, uh, I think, uh, the first murder that we started filming. It happened to be you know, a really interesting one that we were able to unpack, but it meant that by the time this murder happened, we were there, actually got tipped off and got to the trailer where the murder had happened before the detectives even did, and we were allowed inside the cordon, um, which infuriated the local press, who were all kept outside. So we weren't hugely popular with them. Yeah. Um, so no, it was. I mean, it's yeah. really exciting as a filmmaker to get that kind of access. I understand why the court system would let you do it because mm -hmm. there's decades of history of cameras being in the court. Mm -hmm. um, to an extent, I suppose I understand why a prison system would let you inside. Mm -hmm. um, maybe, maybe they're trying to project good practice, fairness. But I start to run out of understanding when it comes to perpetrators, perpetrators' families, victims, people who have, or victims' families. Mm -hmm. Why would they want a camera in their face? Why would they want their tears and everything to be recorded? It's a good question. I think it surprises a lot of people. Um, I think the reality is that what I've found, and this is, you know, those brothers... Uh, were obviously deeply traumatised and incredibly vulnerable at the time. Um, and the first they knew of us, we turned up with the detectives to the crime scene. They just found out maybe uh, an hour before that their father had been had been murdered. Um, I think at that point, even though we introduced ourselves incredibly quickly when it was appropriate to do so, their focus wasn't on us. Uh, their minds were all over the place and they just wanted to talk to the detectives. They wanted to help in any way that they could. They were dealing with their own grief. Um, and then I think when we were able to approach them, when it was safe to do so, um, weirdly, I, I think they saw us as, as a, a comfort, uh, that, that we, um, we weren't 
family, so uh, we weren't sort of overly emotionally embroiled in what they were going through. Uh, we weren't the authorities. We were someone neutral uh, that they could talk to, um, who was showing them a huge amount of, of sympathy. Um, and I think that they felt that uh, what they were going through, they weren't going to remember further down the line. It's, it, it's funny. I, I, the moment after uh, the murder, you expect people to to sort of be unable to function, and and weirdly, I think it takes them a long time to um, to sort of catch up on themselves and what's happened and process their grief. And actually, uh, they were in a much worse state a month after the murder than they were immediately after the murder. And by that point, um, we'd really gotten to know them well. Yeah. And I think they just wanted to talk a lot at yeah. first. I don't think they were scared of of being in their own company on their own. Um, I think, you know, being left alone as a family is difficult because, as I say, you're sharing each other's grief. Um, we were a distraction, I think, <clears throat> and and uh, and as the sort of relationship developed and, and maybe they got to a point where they were really starting to struggle for the first time, um, we had their trust and uh, and I think that we we were sort of. Uh, support for them in many yeah. ways. I mean, the questions of trust and access, everything in the third uh, episode, which we'll, which we'll come to, take on a really quite rich uh, ethical uh, mm. consideration mm. Uh, aspect as well, and I'm looking forward to getting stuck into that a little bit later. But let's just pause on American justice for a second and talk about Arthur. Uh, you're half English, half Kiwi, so very conflicted with the tournament that's going on down under <laughs> uh, at the moment. And you're an uh, independent documentary filmmaker, yeah. with your pr- and your practice is largely in London? Yes, yeah, so I'm a freelancer, I'm based in London, but um, obviously move about wherever I'm filming. I work at, I'm making this, I made this series and I'm currently working at an independent company called Minnow Films. Um, but I, I move with the project rather than staying at a company. So um, my last four or five projects have been for the BBC, but I've also made films for, for Channel 4 as well. Yeah. Um, for those who are in the room yesterday, the next question will be, Jermaine, then, are you finding yourself getting commissions from the BBC because you've done stuff for the BBC and they've learned about your methods and they trust you? I hope so. Um, this, was, uh, this series was commissioned by Claire Sillery, who's uh, the head of documentaries at the BBC. Um, so, uh, yes, there's an extent to which... Um, once you have delivered a good program for them, maybe you've been a director on a, on a three-part series and you weren't the reason that that particular series got commissioned, but your, um, uh, your film is, is good and, uh, and they trust you, um, they're going to come back to you. And, and I think um, they trust the indie and they trust the filmmaker and I think that the combination of the two is, is what helps get commissions. Right. Um, and so is it Claire is saying to you over coffee, um, we really need uh, a multifaceted three-hour uh, forensic crime intimate drama, or are you taking that to her in the first instance? And if that's the case, how did this story find you? Uh, so we're, the company take that to her in the first instance. So the company had made a, a, a really good series called The Detectives following uh, Greater Manchester Police and an investigation into... Um, a man called Ray Terrett, uh, who um, had been a, a DJ and uh, uh, had known Jimmy Savile very well. 
So uh, that was a, th a three-part series that got BAFTA nominated, and I think that um, they wanted to build on that. Um, and uh, for the reasons that we discussed at the beginning, they thought going into America would give them an opportunity to do something different. It was also a very interesting time politically in America with um, the elections last year. Um, so they, uh, they went to, to Claire Sillery and said, uh, you know, we'd like to do the detectives in America and we think we can build on that and not just concentrate on the work of, of detectives, but look at the whole justice system um, in a way in which uh, it would be harder for us to do in the UK. She bought into that, and at that point, um, they found, uh, got in touch with me. I was finishing uh, a film I was making with Louis Theroux about, um, about Jimmy Savile, um, and asked me if I'd be interested to, to work on it, and you have a number of, of, of conversations, and you bring them ideas, and you start to flesh out what's just a proposal at first, a one-pager. Um, and then you go back to, to Claire Sillery, to the BBC, and you say, this is, this is what we, we'd like to do with it. And uh, you know, at this point, are you happy to greenlight it and give us the money to do that? Um, but you know, she, she's great. She's not too controlling in terms of, of what she's expecting back. I think she realises that um, observational documentaries are very unpredictable. So it would be wrong for us to promise we could deliver X, Y, and Z before we'd even started. I think the power of observational documentaries is you have an idea of what you could get. Um, but you surprise yourself along the way, and, and uh, it, it's amazing how often a finished program can be wildly different to the treatment that, uh, that sold the idea in the first place. And that's fine. Um, if that goes wrong, then maybe you don't have quite the same trust next time around. Mm. Um, but more often than not, I think that's where that's the exciting part. So that's where the sort of magic is in making documentaries. <coughs> and it was Minnow's idea to make a detective-style program in America at about the time of the presidential election, and indeed the local, the local state right. prosecutorial yeah. um, uh, elections happen throughout the series they as do. well, giving us amazing context. Maybe that sets us up for the next It does, uh, yeah. Yeah, and no, I think that probably helps with the next clip. There, there was um, obviously the presidential elections going on, and in this next clip you'll see um, Trump actually came through Jacksonville when we were there, so... We filmed a, a Trump rally and, and what was going on outside that rally. But um, uh, we were also following the local um, race for, for the state attorney's position. And that's a very powerful position in America. They preside over the, uh, all, all the prosecutors and, and uh, choose how to prosecute every criminal case in the city. And uh, the woman that was the incumbent, Angela Corey, had been variously called the cruelest prosecutor in America and had been in office for eight years. And... Um, there was a feeling uh, in the city that maybe it was time for, for a bit of a change. So that plays out over the series mm. um, and becomes a particularly uh, important part of the third episode. We'll talk about that later. Again, I can understand why her and her rival, who had worked for her right. at one point, would love the idea of a camera crew from the BBC <laughs> being around quite a lot because they get to sort of project their own... To an extent, I mean, I think Ma uh, Melissa Nelson, who was running against her, had worked and they'd been very close... Um, had worked for Angela Corey. I think she was, was maybe slightly less keen and, in fact, didn't really grant us access during the campaign. But Angela Corey uh, maybe felt that... I mean, actually, she was quite an arrogant woman. I think maybe she thought that um, she could show off the good work that her office were doing. Mm. A part of me thinks that um, she thought maybe she was about to get beaten and this was almost a legacy piece for her. Right. Um, because it was unusual to be granted that kind of access to her. Yeah, office. in the car with her. And right, yeah, on the way to, um, 
to sort of various campaign events, etc. Yeah. I've got a couple more, you know, set pieces, if you will, uh, to set up another clip, but I don't want this to just be, you know, sort of us up here and you down there. From now on and at any point, um, please do sing out the question if one springs to mind. There's quite a lot to get through, so maybe a couple of the things that I've just talked about I'm going to leave uh, behind now. Um, if a question presents itself, we'll ask you to pause for a, a microphone to be brought to you, and that's the end of me filling 20 seconds of dead air. I suspect there are no questions. Yeah, well, there are. Good. I think you were you had your nose ahead, and then you, sir, towards the back, and then I se- I've seen you there as well. Hi there. Um, you may, you're a self-shooter, so can you just give us an idea of what the crew on the ground was when you were making the film? Sure. So um, I series directed uh, all three films with one other director, um, and we had two producers on the ground with us as well. So me and, and Johnny, the other director, um, self-shot everything together. So, um, yeah, I mean, that shot of a, a police car is, is Johnny driving a pickup and me hanging out the back with a, a gimbal. Um, but I mean, I you know you keep you self shooting helps in terms of keeping costs down, but um, with this sort of tricky access, uh, it's also restricting the number of people that are around, and you're developing the relationships as a director with your contributors. It helps that you're the one holding the camera, and um, that you can largely disappear. I mean, the strength of observational documentaries, uh, I think, um, rest on on being able to sort of melt into the background, and people forget you're around quite quickly. All six foot three. All six foot four, actually. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing how uh, insignificant I can seem in a room. <laughs> Hello, yes. Um, one of the biggest problems I have in, in documentary is actually demonstrating access when pitching. Um, it's kind of it's easy when you get to like a trailer, you know, your, your taster, when you can show it in camera, but how do you go about demonstrating that to a commissioner in the initial pitch? I mean, I think that's um, built on trust, really. Uh, all you can do is, is turn around and say, I, I assure you that you know, we've been given access by uh, the courts and the sheriff's office out in Jacksonville. Um, they don't insist on an access agreement being signed before they're willing to, uh, to give you the money to make it. But I think if, if you turned around two weeks later and said, uh, actually, it's all fallen through and uh, we can't make this anymore... Um, you may find it harder the next time you're pitching to them. But, you know, it, that's about developing trust with a commissioner, um, which, you know, channels do over a long period of time, and there's a reason why you don't get four or five projects commissioned as a new company. Uh, you, you just you want to get that one and then the next one, and, and, and you can build from there once you've established those relationships with, uh, with the channels and with commissioning editors. Hi there. Hi. Congratulations on that series, by the way. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you. In terms of that, do you think in the UK where we restrict access to the courts, that actually opening up access would actually open access to justice and people be more aware of what's happening? I think it'd be a really good thing. I was listening to an interesting programme on Radio 4 the other day where someone was being taken around the Old Bailey. Um, and, you know, the, the main court in the Old Bailey has, the, you know, the huge box for the media, and he was saying it's a shame we don't get as many media in here anymore, and I, I think that, um, you know, the whole point of, of the Old Bailey and the justice system when it was initially built was uh, to inform the public of what was going on. Uh, you know, that's why the public are invited to go and sit in and then watch trials if they want to. I think it'd be a really useful thing um, to, to open the courts up. I think you have to be careful with that, and there are people who would look to exploit that kind of access. Uh, but I think done responsibly, I, I can only see it being a good thing to have that sort of transparency, keep people more honest, probably. <laughs>
the price of it, though, might be some kind of British Judge Judy, <laughs> which I don't think any of us are hungry for. Well, we've got Judge... Uh, what's he called? Now? There you go, yeah. All right. Um, yes, please. Like you, you said you went over to America to do some kind of tests of a preliminary um, uh, thing to bring them to the BBC uh, for commissioner. How do you finance that? How do you finance that? Yeah. yeah, so you go to the channel and you say, um, we think this could be really great, and they give you just a small amount of money to go and shoot that taster, just so they're, they're investing in ideas the whole time, and, and they'll lose money that way. There'll be lots of ideas that, that don't develop. Um, but yes, they, they fund that. You don't fund that yourself. One of the things I think anyone watching this or other series would barely suspect at all, given the high amount of uh, polish, um, given that there wasn't a lot of money to throw at um, you know, production values, is how by the seat of the pants it can be when mm-hmm. you are actually filming pants. Arthur, you could share a war story or two with us about um, as you were talking to someone or filming them, a happy accident happened and indeed something unexpected and unwelcome happened. You must have a briefcase full of both of those. Sure. Um... And then how you deal with it and is there anything particular about your skill set that helps you negotiate those hurdles? Yeah, I mean, I, I think particularly when you're filming, um, you're filming with uh, the authorities. You make a, 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 a sort of series like this, and you're wanting to include everyone's perspective. You go into a community like Eureka Gardens that we were just going into in that last clip, which is a very dangerous area of Jacksonville, and you're going in with detectives. But you're conscious that uh, further down the line, you are very keen to speak to uh, people in the community. That whole film is about the, the disconnect between um, the community and law enforcement, particularly the black community and law enforcement, and how um, the clearance rate, which is uh, the number of arrests that are made after a murder, has dropped dramatically in the last 50 years. It's an amazing stat. It, I think 50 years ago, the clearance rate for homicide in America was 90%, or just over 90%. And even uh, despite the fact that the forensic science improved so much and, and the DNA analysis... It's now as low as 63%. And when the victim is black, I think that drops down to about 50%. Um, and that's largely because uh, trials and cases are built on witnesses. Um, and people do not want to be a, a witness in any criminal case, particularly from the black community. They grow up very sceptical of the police. They're treated badly. Um, there was a trial in that film as well about a, a young uh, man who was um, shot in, in a strip club in Jacksonville. And the strip club, 350 people in the strip club. And... Uh, and happened right in the middle of, the, of this packed strip club, and, and there were no witnesses. Mm. And it took three years to find anyone who was willing to come forward. And, and um, what's difficult there is that's a, a black-on-black crime, so you have devastated uh, parents who, who've lost their son, and uh, the reason they can't get justice is because uh, of the scepticism within their own community. Um, and you know, if you don't get justice in a case like that, it's held up a, as an example of how the justice system doesn't work for the black community. So it's a sort of it's a, it's a horrible cycle. Um, so when you go into a place like Eureka Gardens, you're there with, with uh, the detectives. You're managing your relationship with them. You're also conscious that you don't want to seem too uh, chummy and, and in their pocket because you're going to want to uh, get the opinions of the community later on. And uh, if, if they feel that you're in cahoots with the authorities, they're not going to trust you. So we had a slightly sort of dicey few days after uh, we filmed the initial crime scene where... Um, uh, Johnny and I went back to the community um, 
and and hung around and and, and got talking to people and and uh, you know bear in mind there are, are shootings there frequently and um, there's a lot of drug dealing that goes on there and you know maybe they weren't around when we entered with uh, the detectives and maybe they didn't recognize us but um, we were pretty nervous that they might think we were some sort of uh, sort of undercover officer or but it was hugely important to us that we got that perspective uh, you know I think that's what we had decided would make this series stand out was being able to talk to people like them and the BBC went round and round and, and we had to do some sort of um, training about hostile environments and they suggested we go in with uh, bulletproof jackets on and we thought well if we turn up in this community with bulletproof jackets on everyone is walking around topless uh, <laughs> what does that sort of say about us it's like you know you're black you're probably going to shoot me I mean people would have thought we were we were racist or so uh, you're managing that kind of risk constantly thinking um uh, I really want to get this footage, I also don't want to get shot, and uh, you know, you're sort of looking out for each other. Um, so we were pretty anxious, and, and it took a while for people to, um, to sort of warm up to us. Um, lots of sort of suspicious glances and people avoiding us, but uh, like I say, we spent two or three days hanging out there, and eventually someone came forward and, and uh, was just curious and, and bored. And it turned out he was the sort of local kingpin drug dealer, so we did well to get in with him. Yeah. And uh, once um, once he'd started talking to us, the rest of the community really opened up. But um, you don't get these things quickly, and it seems effortless on. I hope it does. Anyway, it seems effortless on screen, and you think, oh, everyone's willing to talk to them. But that that's a very gradual process, and you have to you know, you, you really have to stick it out. Um, and that can take weeks, it can take months sometimes. Um, so that that's high risk. There's all, and there's also, mm. you're constantly managing access that you're terrified is going to fall mm. down the whole time. And, you know, even though you've been granted access to, say, the state attorney's office or to the county jail, you're only, you're only as good as your last uh, bit of filming with them. Something uh, frustrates them. You're conscious that they can shut down on you immediately. Um, and you might be a sort of a third of the way through your film and, and, and all of a sudden you can't keep going, you've got no film. And that happens, you know, people will, uh, you'll catch them on the wrong day or something will spook them and they'll decide they no longer want you to film and, and you thought everything was going great and suddenly it looks like the whole production's going to collapse. So you're living on your nerves constantly and you're having to renegotiate access as you go. Um, so you never want to get too comfortable with your access. Um, and I think it, it, it's it, it's it's something that you are um, you're managing as much as the filming is, is it doesn't it doesn't start and stop when you're you're filming. The most important work is probably going on when you're not filming, managing those relationships. Yeah, I mean across the <clears throat> three episodes, you and your colleagues aren't putting yourselves in potential peril or danger that often, but when you do, it's palpable. Um, you hinted uh, a moment ago that the BBC train you. Before you go out, you must dance through some hoops before they'll let you do a yeah, thing, well, or do you just, I'm not telling them about? There's a little bit of both. You've you got to be careful um, that you're not dishonest with them about uh, environments that you're going to throw yourself into. Um, there are, you know, for the production company as well, you know, the, the, there's insurance policies that they need to be uh, careful about. So yeah, we did have some training. I mean, it, it was an, um, uh, an American ex-Marine uh, who came by our apartment in Jacksonville and we spent the day uh, doing some um, weapons training. We, we didn't handle the weapons, but he was showing us uh, how to recognize certain weapons that you might find on the streets in Jacksonville. 
uh, and you know, with this assault rifle, hiding behind a car door isn't going to help you, that kind of thing. Be aware of your nearest exit. Um, I had a, you know, a, a sort of seven-month-old son at the time, so um, I would have probably been more gung-ho five years ago. And to some extent, it does inform um, what you go after. Uh, you know, we could have taken greater risks. We could have tried to make a film uh, that was even more from the perspective of the community rather than being built around access to the authorities. Um, but, uh, you know, they're very, very, very hard films to make. You don't see them often for a reason. I've got an idea where I want to take this next. Does anyone want to pick up on anything that was said in the last few minutes before I do that? Um, we are, if anything's running as a theme throughout this conversation, is that word access. And I wanted to talk a bit about the access to the main perpetrator in the third. Uh, in the, and we've got an extraordinary clip to build up to um, as well for the last clip of the day. Um, but the, the story of the third episode is the, sent, the, the trial, it was sort of, and then the sentencing, absolutely, of a boy who committed um, a murder when he was 12, and he's about 14 and a half at the point that you're... Starting to film with him, yeah. I, um, I mean, I actually only managed to get the Wi-Fi working properly this morning in the hotel, so I arrived today to meet Arthur, really moved. It's an extraordinarily powerful... And in no way... Am I saying, you know, not only for the, you know, heart of heart, it's, it's, uh, it's very beautiful and poetic uh, film for all the tragedy um, that's in it. Uh, but I must say I frowned often at the idea of this poor boy who had no clue where he was, what he'd done even really hadn't, didn't strike me that he had a moral compass really to know what he'd done. Ethically, where does that leave you and Minnow and the BBC and us I felt very, very voyeuristic. Mm. Uh, I, mm. must, I must say, in no way is that a derogation of the film. I think it's a triumph. Um, but are these the sorts of things that are discussed? I guess the second half of the question is, why does that boy want a camera in his face? Mm-hmm. I sort of understand why his mum and his grandma do unhappy lives that they've had. He was more keen than his, his mother. Yeah. Uh, we, got, uh, we actually met him before we met his mother. Um, we were filming in the jail uh, with another defendant in, uh, that was in the... Second episode. Um, so he was a 12-year-old boy uh, who had shot a, a homeless man uh, in the head when he was 12. And um, he was uh, black and uh, originally from New Jersey and lived in a very poor neighborhood in Jacksonville and, in fact, was estranged from his family at the time of the shooting, living in a, uh, a sort of abandoned house with some other teenagers. Um, he had a, had a period of homelessness um, he had been beaten by his uh, grandmother, um, who was very abusive. He'd been given drugs by his mother when he was uh, a young child. He was smoking weed and, and um, uh, taking cocaine when he was 11 uh, with her. Um, he had an IQ of about 85, 86. Um, uh, and yet they have a, a, a law in, in, in Florida and in, in many states in America where you can with the most severe crimes involving juveniles, try them as adults. It's called the direct file law. And so Angela Corey had a record of trying young kids as adults. And her stance was, you know, this juvenile system can't handle Mm. these kinds of crimes. She didn't really care about the mitigating circumstances. Um, And uh, she she felt that if the crime was bad enough, uh, they should take full responsibility for it. 
of course, an incredibly powerful argument uh, that as a 12-year-old you can't process exactly what you're doing. You're not emotionally developed enough to understand the consequences of, of your actions. Uh, and even if you do have some sense of what you're doing, should you really be held responsible given your background, etc.? So it was, it was a subject that we knew we wanted to um, cover in a series. We knew it would be very powerful for a UK audience where those sorts of laws don't apply here. Um, and we were waiting for the right case. Um, and yes, we did question constantly uh, whether it was right to follow this case. But we got to know Sharon, the boy, pretty well in jail and spent some time with him without cameras. Uh, he'd been in there for... Uh, two and a half years uh, waiting for, for, first of all, his plea hearing to come around. He pled guilty to this crime in the end, so it didn't go to a trial. It went straight to sentencing, um, where the parameters were then set at, at a minimum of 10 years or a maximum of 40 years for, for him to spend in jail. Um, and I think he was, he was bored, uh, so initially that's probably why he wanted to talk to us. We showed an interest in, in him and we showed sympathy for his case and and, um, and we ended up being a bit of a go-between because his mother was restricted to, to, to one visit a week and we were allowed access whenever we wanted. Um, we were able to uh, bring him news of, of his family, of his mother, which was a comfort to him in the build-up to, to this sentencing. Um, and, and also provides a sort of reassurance for his mother that he was okay in there, which was an odd position to find yourself in. Um, and I think that he was uh, smart enough at, at 14, you know, low IQ, um, but someone who had experienced uh, more in his 14 years than, than most, uh, to realise that um, it was probably unfair the way the system was treating him and that by allowing his case uh, to be filmed, uh, we were highlighting that issue um, and uh, maybe further down the line it would make people think twice about treating uh, the next sort of 12, 13-year-old in the same way that he was being treated. Mm. Um, I think the reality is that Sharon won't see this film. Um, I, I don't know when he would and I, I'm not even sure his mother has. I mean, we've tried to, to, to show the film to her um, but she's very up and down, um, and one day she'd be liable to invite you in, and and you'd spend uh, sort of four or five hours with her, and the next day she'd shut the door in your face, and so there was a long period of deciding uh, whether we should uh, follow the case, um, whether she could even uh, get her head around consenting for her child to be filmed. We couldn't film him without her consent. Um, and we started, and then there was a, a moment where we thought we were going to have to stop, and, and we were constantly discussing that with the production company and our execs who were back in the UK and with the BBC. Um, but uh, his defence attorney, who you'll see in the clip, uh, briefly stood next to him, um, was really behind it and, and felt that it was hugely important that um, you know we were shining a light on this issue. Um, and actually, the, the, just to set up this clip, um, Angela Corey, this very vindictive state attorney, had, um, had just lost. Uh, so, so Sharon was due to be sentenced under Angela Corey, um, and uh, the defence attorney was very anxious about what sort of sentence he could get because she had a history of, of giving the max for, for juveniles, so he could have got 40 years in jail, and in fact another boy who we were following in this episode did get 40 years for murder. Um, and uh, he was supposed to be sentenced under her and then amazingly a hurricane struck on the day of his sentencing 
um, and the sentencing got delayed for four or five months. And in that time, she lost the election. And this more moderate uh, state attorney came in, this woman called Melissa Nelson, who had campaigned hard on um, treating juveniles more fairly. And we all thought, oh, this is amazing. Uh, you know, one of those things that you can't uh, predict. Um, and the documentary is going in a more interesting direction than we thought it would we thought he would get a, a, a lower sentence. What we really wanted to do with this series uh, was to, um, to strike a sort of neutral uh, path through the film. Um, you know, I think that often the best documentaries, uh, you don't necessarily know the point of view of the filmmaker. It's left to the viewer to decide. I think it would have been very interesting, uh, it, very easy rather for us to go into this uh, with our sort of liberal sensibilities and say we absolutely side with Sharon and with the defence attorneys and we're going to spend more time with them understanding their point of view. But in fact it was kind of more interesting for us to spend more time with the prosecutors because their opinion is one that you find it harder to get your head around yeah. and we wanted to give them the space to justify why they were doing what they were doing. Yeah. Um, in the end, I think that in the edit, with the way you cut it together, you probably pull that back uh, anyway. Uh, and I think that the sensibilities of a viewer uh, are going to lean more on, on the side of the defence attorney, naturally. So um, you hope that, that by giving the prosecutor more screen time, eventually what you end up with is something that feels very, very balanced. Um, and I felt that the success of that episode would rest on people being uncertain about what they would have done if, if they were the judge, what kind of sentence they would have handed down. Yeah. Um, so it was why when it went out, I was following it on Twitter, and, and it's great, actually, Twitter, because you can see people reacting uh, sort of every 20 seconds to what's going on, and people were very... Um, when, the, when the... It was TX. When it was, when it was TX, when it was going out. So I've, yeah. I've, by that point, I've seen the film um, uh, 200 times, so I don't need to watch it again, but it is fun to watch on Twitter how people are reacting to, to the programme. And I was particularly interested with this episode to see what people uh, felt uh, Sharon deserved for yeah. his crime. It's um, two speeches from the judge there, one to the filmmakers and then one sentencing the boy. For me, that first one, it's almost Leah-like with its emotional gravity. It just sort of, you know, it finishes the whole series. In a way. An extraordinary thing for him to have done is, yeah. is, is to open himself up like that. Um. Yes, we asked uh, to talk to him for a long time, and um, he wouldn't grant an interview uh, at first. Um, but we, f we started filming that in June uh, 2016, and it finally finished in March of this year. And um, uh, I think that uh, we'd managed to have a number of conversations with him uh, off-camera and uh, persuaded him of... of uh, the value of what we were doing and how important it was for him to speak out. He was a much more um, liberal judge in Jacksonville than most. Um, a lot of them would have handed down 40 years without a, a sort of a moment's hesitation. Um, uh, he was a much more thoughtful man. I think he was very sad about um, the state of affairs and, and the fact that these sorts of crimes were going on and there seemed to be little that they could do to stop it happening. And he does hand down a tough sentence. Mm. I mean, 30 years for a 12-year-old is, 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 is really tough. Um, but uh, it, it's written in the Florida statutes that um, you know the aim of, of, of the system is, is to punish and rehabilitation is, is a sort of secondary concern 
Um, and they really stick to that in Jacksonville and, and the prosecutors argue that even though the mitigating circumstances are awful and um, they would uh, be delighted if the boy could be rehabilitated, uh, their responsibility is to the community and, and uh, it struck them that he was still uh, a danger. I mean, he had been caught uh, in, in jail uh, several times with, with shanks and uh, had threatened guards with their lives. So he was very unstable. I think he would have, he will respond well uh, if he's given the sort of therapy that he needs but um, there's no certainty so in the end they side uh, on the side of caution and they decide that he deserves the longest sentence uh, that that they can get for him Um, so the judge wouldn't talk wouldn't talk wouldn't talk and 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 we had it in our mind that we wanted to end this series with um, the thoughts of a judge it felt that they uh, was sort of at the top of the pile overseeing this system and that they had arguments from prosecution, arguments from the defence um, and uh, they had to make sense of all of that and hand down uh, their sentence and it felt that uh, it was right to end the series on their point of view mm-hmm. rather than on the side of either the defence or the prosecutor or on a family. Um, but we didn't get it, it was the last bit of filming we did. So really? uh, yeah, he, he handed down his sentence and... Um, Actually, he, he there was the day of sentencing, and we filmed this this long. It's like a mini trial in a day, and um, he delayed delivering his verdict for a month. So we'd flown over to America to to, to finish this film and and to get this uh, this sentencing and the verdict and and wrap up the series. And the program was due to go out a few weeks later, um, and we went over there and. Uh, filmed all day in in the court and thought this is the moment and at that point he said he needed longer um, and he didn't know whether that would take him a week or a month so we had a slightly panicked phone call back to um, to the company who needed to tell the BBC that there was a chance this third episode may have to go out later than you know it's uh, they were going out one week after the next so there might need to be a pause after the second episode which would have broken the flow of the series and we said we're not going to be um, we may not be back, and uh, this is the only opportunity now for you to talk to us. Um, and, and in the end, he relented and gave that interview before he'd handed down his sentence. So even though we didn't talk specifically about Sharon and his feelings about what he was going to do in that case, um, I think it was better that he talked more generally and that Sharon became a symbol of the sorts of uh, cases he had to preside over. Um, so, yeah, I, it... I mean, you, you know, the film would have worked without him, but it's an example of uh, getting that little bit of luck when you need it. And if you persevere hard enough, you, you get there. But it took um, almost a year to get there. Oh, it's just one of those moments, too, with, with documentaries. When you get something like that, a little miracle like that, a little penny from heaven, as it were, it has so much more of an emotional impact mm. than an incredibly scripted and acted set piece in the wire mm. or something because no, that's absolutely. so confected you know from from go to woe i'm interested in a quite a nerdy little thing uh which is uh, do you write a script you don't write a script no um, i don't mean do your script and then film to the script no as you are going for the sake of other departments post-production that sort of thing mm-hmm. does that become a shooting script no, uh, we shared our rushes with our editor. So we had the same editor for all three films, so he had that continuity of style. Um, and he, we were sending him back rushes from America so he could get his head around some of the stories that we were getting. We would catch up with him on the phone quite regularly and talk it through. And the same with our exec. Um, 
Colin Barr, who's who's brilliant, and and we might get him on the phone once every sort of three or four weeks, and we would just talk for three or four hours about what we were getting, and and you know when you're making films, you do get sucked in, and every now and then you need someone to give you that bigger picture perspective on what you're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of a script, no, uh, I mean. You, you, you're constantly plotting out scenes. So, you know, you might get the start of an investigation and you then start to imagine where it could go. You know, we're going to get this scene, we're going to get this scene, we're going to get this scene. And you might get sort of uh, a couple of them and, and then think something will surprise you and you'll get something you weren't expecting. But you're constantly sort of uh, reevaluating what it is that you've got and what it is that you need to get throughout the process so that you are, you know, story is everything and you're trying to, you know, you are conscious of, of, of making sense of this story in the edit. And things that might be missing um, uh, that you need to go after, lines uh, that you need from someone to make sense of, of something that you've already filmed. Um, so th- there's the sort of intellectual process you're going through all the time. But you know, you might film 120 hours of footage for for an hour-long documentary. So you are filming a huge amount. Yeah. In terms of the script that you hear to sort of bind things together, um, you know the. F- the films typically take maybe sort of 10 weeks in the edit to put together and you might not start putting a, a, a script together uh, for the first half of that edit. Mm-hmm. It's always your aspiration as a filmmaker to try and put a film together that doesn't require uh, a script. Uh, well, key, yeah. yeah, you'd like to. And, and you know, that's possible when you're making um, uh, sort of films about a single narrative. Uh, but uh, we were bouncing around at least two or three stories per episode and between sort of four or five institutions, yeah. points of access. So you needed a little bit of help. Um, but you tried... Like you do in Gogglebox. Like you do in Gogglebox, yeah. You lost without voiceover in Gogglebox. Um, and then how then did it get decided when it was going to be TX'd, mm-hmm. um, that it was going to be week, week, week? Um, I can. I wonder who made the creative decision to have a wink at the wire at the beginning of each episode with a nice sort of swampy bayou, you know, soul to. Oh yeah, I know. I should have brought the pre-titles here. Yeah. They're, they're quite fun. Uh, no, we we. Um, I mean, it has a proper identity of its own. It does, yeah. The typewriter sounds. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And stylistically, who's whose was that called? Was that you? That was me and my co-director. Yeah, that was a song that we uh, we had a sort of American Justice playlist that we would put on in the apartment. Uh, that ended up with about four hundred tracks on it. Uh, a lot of the soundtrack to True Detective, and I think it was the ambition of the BBC, and certainly our ambition to try and make something that felt like a drama uh, that responded to the sort of feature docs that, that uh, we're all able to watch now on Netflix and great imports. And I, I think it's a really exciting time for documentaries and for feature documentaries. Um, and uh, Making a Murderer, if, if yeah. anyone's seen that, it's fantastic. And The Jinx was a, a, a great um, uh, documentary. Um, Staircase is really good. And also true crime dramas are so um, popular at the moment, whether it's True Detective or... Uh, you know, over here, people love Line of Duty and Happy Valley, and so I think the BBC wanted to. Um, uh, their ambition was to make a, a documentary series, a true crime documentary series that felt like uh, those dramas, both in look and tone. Mm. Um, so the the, the choice. Well, you're, sort you're, of you're your own beast as well, though. To obviously there are comparisons with Making a Murderer, then there is a poetry about the observational nature of the way that you shoot and everything, which they didn't bother with. They had so much stuff to get through, so much narrative that they never sort of sat still and, you know, let the full punch to the solar plexus arrive. It was a bit more, what? Turn the page. 
you know. Whereas... Yeah, well, they just happened to be there at the time of this extraordinary yeah. uh, story, so they well, were as, very as, shakily as shocked. Indeed, you, but you, yeah. you, you could you could have easily had that jammed into a feature doc. Yes. Yeah. Or, or even cruelly cut down to one hour with four or five of the stories taken away. I mean, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Please, they gave you the freedom to. Yeah. No, they were really give you good. The room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a chronological room. Yeah, no, and, and, and you're left to your own devices to put the film together for a good sort of four, five, six weeks, and then Claire Sillery, the commissioning editor, will come in and you'll have a viewing, and, uh, you know, it might be sort of 80 minutes long at that point. You've got to crunch it down to an hour, and there'll be things that she likes, things that she's not so sure about. They're, they're horrible experiences, yeah. sort of viewings. Um, and Where does that take place? That takes place in the edit. In the edit. So on your own turf. Uh, she'll come in and, and um, uh, sit on the sofa. Office. No, well, actually, all editing's done in sort of editing houses. Uh, you need the sort of uh, the equipment. Um, so she'll come in and you'll give yourself sort of two and a half hours to watch and talk about it. Um, and you know your heart's in your mouth. You spend a year uh, shooting it and, and uh, a long time by that point editing it, and you're terrified <laughs> she's going to turn around and say she hates all of it. Yeah, um, and you know she's not going to say she loves everything immediately, and nor should she. And and they do go through a process of being refined, and they improve dramatically from the first viewing to the point at which you feel it's ready to TX. Yeah. So you you, know, you need that input and that perspective. Yeah, I mean I feel now that I'm going to miss the story world in a way. You know, now that I've been so heavily immersed in it since we met each other over email about a week ago. And um, I would absolutely go and spend a few hours on a website watching an EPK or behind the scenes mm-hmm. or stuff that didn't make it into the film. Did the BBC not have any ambition for a, a product like that? They, uh, there were a few news items that went around. We used some um, rushes uh, to do a few shorter pieces, sort of three, four-minute long pieces that were put on, on the BBC website, um, uh, cases that we hadn't been able to include in the series. Yeah. But actually, what's amazing is um, how little footage we didn't use. You know, we had, to, we had to fill three hours, which is quite a lot in TV terms. There's an awful lot you can crunch into an hour. Um, and uh, we didn't want to start filming... 14, 15, 16 cases because we were conscious that we wouldn't be able to go deep on all of them and we'd take our eye off, you know, we'd spread ourselves too thin. So um, we decided to commit to to only six or seven cases and I think there was only one case that we didn't include in the series. So I don't, I don't even mean stuff that didn't get in and we go and get like a fourth episode online only, just, but, you know, I think people have that appetite, especially with factual stuff, mm. but they don't want to leave it. Yeah, sure. Know? I mean... It's a discrete work of art that doesn't need, and then what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can't help yourself. No, I know, I know. You know, I want to know if you're in contact with any of the perpetrators still by email. Um, I'm in touch with with more of the lawyers now and the perpetrators. I actually um, spoke to my producer uh, a few days ago, and we wanted to write to Sharon, who's now been moved to... uh, to an adult facility outside of Jacksonville. So we'd like to keep in touch. Um, The reality is that uh, you develop incredibly close relationships with people you're filming with over the year that you're filming. And um, by the end of it, I think you're more traumatized by that relationship ending in many ways than they are because you've lived and breathed them every day. Um, You've got to leave their life, but they get to They they continue with their life and um, they forget about you probably quite quickly. Uh, but it is hard. It's really hard to leave a series behind. Uh, you know, you, you particularly when you get to the end of an edit and you have to put the program out. Um, 
you never really feel it's finished. Mm. I think there's a Paul Valerie quote, who uh, was a poet, and he said, you know, poems never finished, just abandoned. And I think you, you sort of feel the same way about, um, about films. You could keep tinkering with them forever. And you sort yeah. of want to because you don't want to let go. Yeah. Um, so that you always need a period, a few weeks or something that takes longer um, to uh, recover after finishing something that's that intense. And actually watching that clip, I've seen that uh, uh, you know, hundreds of times and it still really gets me every time and uh, I still feel sort of quite emotional about it uh, because you, you know, I became very invested in Sharon and what was going to happen to him, even though I didn't let on to the prosecutors that I had a huge amount of sympathy for him. I did and, and um, you know, it was really tough to film actually. Mm. We've got time for another couple of thoughts. The lady's going to bring you a microphone. Yeah, I just sort of wanted to ask you about exactly what you've just been talking about, and you were saying earlier as well about being, you know, neutral and sympathetic to these uh, people. Um, and how do you sort of remain detached, and and you know, not sit there rubbing your hands? Going, this is TV gold. There are times when, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you, um, you, you're never too cocky about what you're getting because uh, you need a lot of TV gold to make a good hour of, of television. But of course, when, when you're filming, there are times when things happen and you think, that's going to be really great. I'm looking forward to getting into the edit to put that together. Um, but uh, it's hard, you know, when you're actually filming. Uh, incredibly intense scenes. Um, the camera keeps you quite detached, and, and because you're thinking constantly about what you're shooting, how it looks, uh, where you need to move to, what you need to get after this, how to make sense of this story that, that you're filming, um, in the moment you don't feel it too much, and it's only later, it's, it's probably more emotional piecing it together in the edit than it is at the time. Um, and, I, you know, I, I'm sort of that point of neutrality. I always think as a filmmaker, it's, it's my job to. Um, sort of hold up a mirror to people so it's not about imposing your ideas and your opinions on people it's about letting them s sort of feel secure in telling you how they feel uh, and and you know that means that you know you're hearing things uh, which you, you don't agree with um, uh, but and, and if they knew you didn't agree with it maybe they wouldn't tell you uh, what they're you know what they're telling you uh, but you have to withhold how you feel a lot of the time. You have to make it about them, not about you. I mean, if you're asked a direct question about how you feel, that's tricky, and you have to sort of back out of that conversation as carefully as you can. But it's important to make people feel secure and safe to express their opinions, even if it's an opinion that other people might not share. And sometimes people will watch programmes I've made and think, God, how can... You know, I don't like that person at all. And how, when they watched it, did they feel comfortable with this program going out? Because they, you know, uh, I, my opinion of that person is terrible, and they must know that. But the reality is, what they're seeing is themselves, um, and that's how they are day to day. And you've just reflected that in the documentary. And and sometimes you have to be responsible with that. Um, sometimes you know you're aware that that can invite unwanted criticism on them and uh, and make their lives awkward. So that's something you're managing constantly in the edit. But yeah, you know, I think it's it's just important to to let people sort of speak for themselves and not tell them too much about what you think. On that quasi philosophical note, um, I'm afraid we have to end uh, the session. I'd like to thank Amanda, Helen, and everybody at Expo North for having us. Uh, BAFTA Scotland for organising. Um, uh, Beverly and Emma Baftra Scotland for organising this event and would you all join me in thanking and congratulating Arthur. Thank you.